I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, welcome to Lake Kick is Live. It is Thursday night, June 2nd, the year of our Lord, 2022. Who really has the power in our sport? Dive deep into that tonight. We are jam packed. High atop what can only be described as an anticipatory downtown Nashville, Tennessee. Who are the most powerful head coaches in college football? Not the ones with the best resumes, not the ones with the deepest trophy case, but when they speak, the needle moves. You shut up and pay attention to what they say. Who are those five coaches? We'll dive into that. I've also got a lot of stuff that's really kind of breaking late this afternoon about everything from playoff expansion to how conferences are gonna handle NIL. I'm not gonna spend 20 minutes on it, but I'm gonna get you updated. Scheduling too, what do you need to know in a very, very Cliff Notes version so you don't have to wade through all that BS that's being reported by pretty much everyone. Also, chapter 13 of Bold Predictions. Yes, we're gonna go as long as you care about that. And we're gonna give you some portal sleepers. I got four names out of the transfer portal that I don't think we've discussed on the show. You probably haven't heard discussed a lot nationally that you really need to know. One of them in particular just could outright flip your totals bets over under win totals on a specific team. They're watching us in Lumber City, Georgia, as they should be. It's my home state, although I have not visited Lumber City, but I got I to gotta make that in a destination now. How about Guatemala City, Guatemala? They are tuned in. Also, let me get the name right. Ludoviso is tuned in in Syracuse, Italy. Not upstate New York. Italy is where Syracuse is. Thank you. And last but not least, before we dive in tonight, happy birthday to a very near and dear friend of ours. Management are people too. And that's one of the, one of the focal points around which we present this show. Management are people too. Even the high-level mustache types. So down in Thompson Station, Tennessee tonight, a young man, uh, we will call him Adam, is celebrating a birthday. Happy birthday, I love a mustache, Adam. I hope it's everything that you could have dreamed of and then some. You know, I tell you all the time, you're not wasting your time watching this show. And I've got exhibit 487. There's the paper pop, so you know something significant is about to be shown to you. As to why you're not wasting your time. Remember, when we've been talking about NIL, and, and we've kind of hesitated because I don't think you guys care about it a whole lot. You just care about the overarching, how's this going to end sort of thing. Well, I've told you. And I've told you probably for about the past two months, it's not going to be an NCAA thing. The conferences have to do it. That was everything that we've been hearing behind the scenes. Here's Ross Dellinger. If you're listening on podcast, this was a headline from yesterday. Quote, SEC lawyers are exploring ways that the league could provide interconference oversight on NIL. Greg Sankey says the league is at least for now waiting on the application of the interim NIL guidelines from the NCAA. Allow me to translate. The NCAA put out a bunch of, you know, and we're going to wait and watch it burn to the ground like the Hindenburg, which it will. And then our lawyers are working behind the curtain right now on things that we could actually implement. Essentially, we had the spoilers the whole time if you've been watching Late Kick, and that's not a surprise to you. Okay, let's dive into the show tonight. What do we see around the corner from this point moving forward? I wanted to start 
with something that I think we're going to expand on closer to the season, but I wanted to hit the coaches tonight. Most powerful head coaches in college football. I'm going to give you the criteria right off the top, and I know this is going to be ignored by like 80% of the folks in the comment section. When I ask who the most powerful coaches in college football are, I'm talking about everything from resume to reputation. How much does their voice resonate? How much does their voice move the needle? I want to know what kind of vision they have. Do they see around the corner? And I also want to know how much they are respected and or just outright feared. With all of those thrown into the blender, who are the five most powerful coaches in college football? Number one's pretty easy. That's Nick Saban. This won't change. In fact, I would argue it'll be several years after Saban's retirement before he's not the most powerful voice in the sport. I don't know how long that will be, and I don't know how long from now that will be. But Nick Saban has the best resume in the sports history. Uh, he is excellent in terms of track record of being able to have an idea on things and being able to kind of see around the proverbial corner on things. But also, everything he says moves the needle. We're a media company, and so we get to see the data and the analytics behind the scenes of what happens if you put a name in a headline or if somebody says something relative to someone else saying that same thing, which person, when they made the quote, moved the national needle more? No one does it more than Nick Saban. He can give a, a recipe of his for brownies. It moves the needle. People click on it. It's pretty crazy to see, actually. Uh, we could abuse that if we wanted to. Some of you think I talk Saban in Alabama too much on the show, even though you would do the same if it were your show. But we could really abuse it if we wanted to and just put him in every headline. It would be a sound business strategy. It's not quite the direction we're going to go on the show. All right, so number one's easy. Here's where it gets a little murky. Who's the number two most powerful head coach in the sport? I flip-flopped this, I think, four times today. Uh, right now, I'm going to go with Dabo Swinney as the number two most powerful coach in college football. I, I flip-flopped it with Kirby, by the way. That, that was the guy that I was strongly contemplating putting number two. Dabo Swinney is the guy, speaking historically, that will be looked at as the one who took not one, but two bites out of Bama at the peak of their dynasty. However long it lasts, you will always have that 16 season and that 18 season where they blew Bama out, out in Santa Clara. You'll have that. You'll also have the story that Dabo built his program in many ways in a diametrically opposed fashion to the way Saban built Alabama, which the lesson to me was, well, there's just more than one way to skin the cat. A lot of folks tried to turn it into the good versus evil, the right way versus the wrong way. It's just two different ways, man. They, they both worked. Uh, they were dominating the sport for an extended period of time. It's not like they've gone anywhere. But the other parts of this that matter to me when we're talking about most powerful coaches is Dabo Swinney has kind of become a national voice. You know, there's a thing that we focus on a lot of times in the SEO world, the search engine optimization world. We call them one-namers. Coaches or public figures who have ascended to such a level that you no longer have to use their first and last name. When you just say a name, Saban, Dabo, Kirby, Jimbo, it'll click. People know who you're talking about. When you speak about Dabo Swinney in conversation, you don't say Coach Swinney, Dabo Swinney, no first and last name needed. It's just Dabo. Okay, that shows you that you've been around for a while, you're established, everyone's got an opinion on you. Whether you like him or not, that's kind of irrelevant to the point I'm making here. But the other thing is he does not hesitate, he being Dabo Swinney, to lean into going on the record about big picture issues. But at the same time, he's not a carnival barker. He doesn't talk just to hear his own mouth run. Even if you agree or disagree, you need to understand that 
if you live in Amarillo, Texas, and Dabo Swinney says something, you stop to listen. If you see a headline that says Dabo Swinney speaks out on fill in the blank subject or topic, you're going to click on it. I know you do. I see the numbers. So Dabo Swinney is there at number two. Now, here's the thing. We don't know what the future holds, so this could be where Dabo Swinney peaks. Or imagine this. Imagine it's 2025. Nick Saban has retired from college football. Dabo Swinney has righted the ship. He has moved on in the post-Venables, post-Tony Elliott era. He's gotten himself some new coordinators from in-house. He's reestablished Clemson as a dominant force on the Atlantic coast, and they're right back in the national championship picture every year. In a post-Saban world, for all we know, Dabo could ascend to number one one day in these rankings. So it's a very much remains to be seen thing, but right now I got Dabo at number two. The number three most powerful head coach in college football to me, and rapidly rising, is Kirby Smart. The immediate pushback when I texted some folks about this and said, I think I got Kirby at number two or number three today was, well, he's still kind of young, but is he? First off, he's a special case, just outright, because he's been on the national radar for so long, even before he was a head coach. He was the highest profile coordinator in college football because he was the defensive coordinator for Nick Saban uh, inside the best program in the sport. And so you already knew him. Everyone already knew him before he became a head coach. But even if you're just judging head coaches here, which we are, guys, he's entering his seventh year. So he's, he's a lot closer to being a decade in than he is to his infancy. He just won a national championship. Uh, they have become a model superpower program in the recruiting game. I think Kirby Smart has elevated Georgia from a regional brand to a national brand. Now, back home, a lot of my friends in Georgia, they thought Georgia already was a national brand. It wasn't. It was a regional brand. It has elevated to being a national brand. And there is uh, no easy way to do that. You've got to matter, and you've got to matter for quite a while, and you have to emphatically matter. People can no longer choose to ignore you. They can't ignore Georgia anymore. Under Kirby, they haven't been able to for a while. I think in some people's minds, he needed the championship win to validate his, himself in their minds, I want to stress again, not mine, as one of the best in the game. He already was that. But I'll tell you what that championship win did. I think it gave him a much bigger platform. There was a lot more visibility, maybe from the casual and, and sub-casual crowd that only watches you know, the big games and the championship games. They didn't know Kirby Smart like we knew him. Well, now everyone knows him. But I'll tell you what else is happening. Did you notice when Saban and Jimbo had their little spat, did you notice who the media ran to to get a comment? It was that guy. It was Kirby Smart. Uh, that is, next to Nick Saban, the biggest voice in the SEC. And the SEC is the predominant conference of college football right now. They know. They're not stupid. They, they see the same numbers we do. They know what words out of Kirby Smart's mouth mean in that game. But the other part is, and he's only started to do this recently, is much like Dabo, much like Nick Saban, he started to speak out on some bigger picture issues. I've spoken several times on the show. I'll mention it briefly again. The day after they won the championship, he's still up there in Indianapolis. Reese Davis of ESPN sits down with him, and he has all the freedom in the world just to tout his program endlessly and use that time to be a recruiting and marketing tool. And instead, he took some time and he said, I don't like the direction of the sport right now. I do not like the way the calendar works. I got assistance. And he didn't use these words directly, but here's what he meant. I got assistants having to recruit four classes simultaneously. And a lot of folks think just because they make a big paycheck relative to the paycheck a normal nine to fiver makes in the real world, it justifies having to work the way they work. 
that there's a certain maximum capacity that folks are capable of, no matter if you pay them a billion dollars a year. And right now in college football, we got good guys leaving the game because they have surpassed their maximum capacity. We need to do something about it. Well, as soon as he said that, I can tell you, we talked about it on this show, but behind the scenes, a lot of people started talking about him. That is an indicator of a guy who's got a little more power and a little more stroke than just your average coach or even just your average coach who's winning games. Winning games is one thing, but then having the voice that resonates, that's another thing. Kirby Smart's got both of them now. All right. Now, let's get really particular with, again, the criteria. It's more than just your resume and record. We are talking about a number of things here in terms of most powerful coaches in college football. And with that in mind, my number four most powerful head coach in college football is Lincoln Riley at USC. Get used to saying that because it's still pretty new as it rolls off the tongue. I think this is very much in a state of flux on the upswing, of course, for Lincoln Riley. But I think that in many cases, Lincoln Riley serves as the face of the next chapter of college football, if you understand what I'm saying there. A lot of the stuff we talk about here, whether it's the portal, whether it's NIL, whether it's what's going to happen on the West Coast, when's the Pac-12 going to be back, how long's USC going to be dormant as a superpower, well, this dude has either something or everything to say about all those subjects. This is, again, a guy that's pretty polarizing. No one's indifferent on him, which usually means you matter. It always means you matter. And the second thing is, when it comes to resume, I have no clue why people knock him. He's 55 and 10 as a head coach. He won back-to-back-to-back-to-back conference titles at Oklahoma, went to the playoff three times. The pushback on Lincoln Riley is, well, he didn't win in the playoff. Okay, well, did you see who I had listed above him? They're there for a reason. But outside of that, who's doing it better than Lincoln Riley over that stretch? And now... He picked up, even though he was already at one of the premier programs in America, he picked up, here's the insertion, whether you like it or not, and he went to USC. And now, now here's what's really going to rub some folks the wrong way. Whether you like it or not, Lincoln Riley's voice is the voice of Pac-12 football. He speaks for the West Coast. You don't agree with that in Salt Lake City or, or Eugene, Oregon. I know you don't. I wouldn't either. I am not speaking on behalf of you guys. I'm talking about everyone east of the Rocky Mountains. Everyone east of the Rockies looks at Lincoln Riley and he speaks for the West Coast as far as they're concerned. As far as someone in Milledgeville, Georgia is concerned, Lincoln Riley speaks for not only USC, but the Pac-12 and the West Coast. Well, that's a big burden to have on your shoulders, but it's also a big responsibility. And it stands to reason, if that's how people view you, then you're pretty powerful and only growing more powerful now. That's before he has, quote unquote, resurrected USC. Imagine if all of a sudden, not in year two or year three, but in year one, they win the Pac-12. So you would safely assume that's a little bit ahead of schedule. And then they just just start rattling off playoff caliber season after playoff caliber season. Uh, They continue to own the portal. They continue to not have to rely on the portal so much because they recruit the way they want to. Uh, They're at the forefront of NIL. That's all the makings of one of the most powerful head coaches in college football. Fifth one. I'm only going five deep here. We had Harbaugh. We had Ryan Day. We had Brian Kelly. Who's going to go in this fifth spot? None of them. I got Jimbo Fisher as the fifth most powerful head coach in college football. There's probably no name in the top 10, if I went that deep, that's seen more of a shift in this category over the past six months than Jimbo Fisher. 
which is weird because he's not new. He's not young. He didn't just get to College Station. But yet, a lot of things, I think, in terms of public perception, have changed about Jimbo as of late. I mean, that guy has really taken it to another level. Ultimately, that only matters if he backs it up and his team backs it up on a football field on Saturdays in the fall. I think we all understand that. But Texas A&M, think about them. It's, it's very appropriate there in the state of Texas because Texas A&M has always been college football's version of big oil. It's just that they haven't had their John D. Rockefeller come in and capitalize on it. But now people start to stink and, and they say, well, maybe they have. Maybe Jimbo is that guy. Do you see what we're doing in recruiting? Do you see what we're doing in NIL? And here's the most important part for a lot of folks in Texas around this program. When folks came after us, when Nick Saban came after us, did we do what we've seen other programs and coaches do? Did we tuck tail and run? No, our guy pulled out his sword and said, come on. And he started swinging it wildly, uh, verbally, of course. And that appealed, as you would imagine it did. To the, to the base, to the fan base out there in and around Texas A&M. Well, you say all that, and then you also need to understand that people inside the sport have looked at Texas A&M for a long time and said, I hope they never get it figured out. Because if Texas A&M ever gets it figured out, that's going to be a nightmare to deal with. Because folks who have been there or folks who know the program, they know the resources are limitless. They have been for a long time. Uh, they know that it's, a, it's a, like a launching pad, and it's just that for some reason, no one's ever put the right guy in the rocket ship out there. So they've never really been able to blast off. Well, I know that right now, a lot of you, partially out of a defense mechanism in your own mind, look at Jimbo and look at A&M and say, oh, they'll never be better than 8-4. and four. Yeah, they will be. I promise you they will be. Now, is it going to be 12-0? and 0? Is it going to be SEC championships, playoff appearances? I don't know that. I have no clue. No one does. But there's a lot of skill. While there may not be skill in that, there's a lot of skill in using your common sense and looking at the talent they're acquiring and thinking eight and fours are probably going to be in the rearview mirror. In the future, the difference in good versus great at Texas A&M is going to be 12 and 0 versus 10 and 2. That's, that's the rarefied air they're about to ascend to. And Jimbo Fisher, much like the other five guys on this list, when he talks now, there are a few truths in this uncertain world, but one of them is you will for sure shut your mouth and pay attention when Jimbo Fisher talks from now on. Some people may even proactively not mention him so as to avoid the kind of thing that we saw in the last month. Nick Saban, Dabo Swinney, Kirby Smart, Lincoln Riley, Jimbo Fisher, those, as of this moment in time, are my five most powerful head coaches in college football. Things are going really good around here on a number of fronts. Um, there are some stories about the last week or so that one day, not too far down the line, I'll be able to tell you. It's gonna be very entertaining. Can't tell you right now, legally, I am foreboding from doing that. It's just a word I've always wanted to use on the show. However, what I can tell you is, things are going really good between us and Academy Sports and Outdoors. I would, I would liken it to this. Our college age, you probably haven't seen the movie Coming to America. I strongly recommend you do it. Uh, Prince Hakeem. You know, after he really starts to get some traction with Lisa McDowell, not Lisa McDonald, Lisa McDowell, no seeds on the bonds. He is very happy. And he just walks down the streets of Queens singing To Be Loved. That's how I feel about us in Academy right now. We're in a very good place. We'll probably have a lot of great news to share with you in the future. That's not even what I was referencing a second ago. But I have sat here behind this microphone and I have promised you that 
Sure enough, Academy Sports and Outdoors, they've got your sporting goods, they got all your supplies that you need for the field, but I've also told you, you need to go in there or you need to go to academy.com because I'm telling you guys they got a lot more than just balls and bats. They got a lot more than just sporting goods equipment. Well, some of you have finally started to take me up on that. So I don't even want you to take my word for it anymore. I want you to listen to Tyler. Tyler stopped by Academy. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can actually see the visual evidence of the receipt he sent me. You guys send me Academy receipts every day. But if you're listening on podcast from Sergeant Texas, Tyler says, I drove past multiple. I've excluded the name of the store he, uh, he avoided. He neglected to go to Academy. He said, I've drove past multiple stores to hit Academy. I picked up some crab traps on the way down to the beach house in Sargent, Texas. Now, have I ever mentioned crab traps in the Academy ad read? Of course I haven't. Never purchased one in my life. But Tyler needed to, and he didn't go to A or B or C. He knew to go to Academy because some dude somewhere in Nashville told him, you know, they've got a lot more at Academy than you would think they have, including crab traps. So I don't know if this is going to be worth building an entire marketing campaign around, but if you need balls or you need crab traps, Academy Sports and Outdoors or academy.com is the place for you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. We got a lot of bold predictions on the show, you know? Bold statements, but bold predictions. If you want either, this is the place for you. I've got a lot to get to, by the way. There's, there's a lot that's just happened in the past few hours that we're going to get to. But first, chapter 13 of bold predictions. And I can just go ahead and tell you, there is no bold prediction out of the five I'm about to share with you that I rated any lower than an eight. This could be the highest average boldness in the history of bold predictions. First up, Caleb Williams, recently of Oklahoma, now of USC fame. Caleb Williams' production will not match the astronomical hype he's getting. And this is a prediction from you guys. And you claim that you believe these and you would bet your money on it. I rated this an 8 on the boldness scale. I got a lot of confidence in Caleb Williams this year. But first we have to define what the expectation is. Before you tell me he's not going to meet the hype, he's not going to meet the expectation. Well, we got to define what the expectation is. So if I were to poll 10,000 college football fans, including Southern Cal fans, I think we would agree that last year at Oklahoma as a freshman in 11 games, he had a really good year, 64.5% uh, completion percentage. He was a 21 touchdown to four interception guy. He uh, threw for 1,900 yards. He ran for 440. So that was a good year last year, very good year. I think it's a reasonable expectation and a widely held expectation that he will – somewhat improve upon those numbers this year. 
And there's good reason to believe that. Everything from Travis Dye coming in from Oregon in the backfield to Mario Williams transferring there. Also, you got the Bolitnikoff winner, Jordan Addison. Both of those are wide receivers. They transferred in. There's a lot of reason, uh, not the least of which is it's his second year in Lincoln Riley's offensive system, to believe that Caleb Williams is going to have a really good year this year. Whether he's in New York City for the Heisman or not, you can miss out on that and still have a really good year. Here's the only point of concern outside of injury, which no one can predict. The only point of concern is offensive line is not something they have figured out yet, and no one really suggests otherwise. But at the same time, Caleb Williams is no statue in the pocket. So unless you have a, a crystal ball that can predict injury or something like that, if that guy's starting 12 games for Southern Cal, they open against Rice. You know what the number one rule on the show is. Don't lose to food. But after that, they got Stanford, they got Fresno, they got Oregon State, they get into conference play then. Uh, they do not play Oregon in the regular season. This is a very, very workable slate, and it's a very, very fortuitous situation for Caleb Williams to be in. So I rated it an eight. I, I think he's going to do really good this year. Next up, this one's bold too. They all are. Nathan said, uh, the Florida Gators, they're just going to win the East. That's from Charlotte, North Carolina. Florida winning the SEC East. The Florida Gators in Billy Napier's first year on the job are in Atlanta for the SEC championship game. That is an eight on the boldness scale, and I contemplated going to a nine. So what a mm, hiccup. That was a bad one, Jesse. Did you see that? Over under win totals here in the SEC East. Georgia's at 11 and a half. Coming off a national championship, it, literally if they lose one game this year, the under hits. So they're at 11 and a half. Uh, Kentucky, not Florida, is second at an over under of eight and a half. Tennessee, not Florida, is third at an over-under of seven and a half. And then it's Florida at fourth with an over-under of seven. So they're a solid four and a half games back of the preseason favorite to win the, or to win the division in terms of over-under win total. Does that mean everything in the world? No, but it's a pretty good indicator, about as good an indicator as we're going to get in June. The other thing I want to bring to your attention is there are depth issues on this team that no amount of portaling can fully address. They also have to play LSU and Texas A&M from the West. So there are a lot of things working against Billy Napier in year one. Ultimately, as you know, if you've listened to the show, I've got all the confidence in the world in Billy Napier. And even if I didn't, people who are far more reputable than me inside the game have all the confidence in the world in him. So it's not one of those, they're never going to do anything, but we're talking about this year now. This year, it's tough for me to see that. Let's just say Georgia were to drop two games, but one of them isn't the cocktail party. So let's say we don't know the outcome of that game. It would still be a tall task to ask Florida to have that kind of resume to be able to make it to Atlanta. Crazier things have happened, but wide receiver is not a position group that I'm overly excited about with them this year. They couldn't practice the way they wanted to in spring because of a lack of depth at critical areas. I just think about them in week 10 week 11, week 12, unless they have totally threaded the needle and they're healthy wire to wire and the natural attrition, which hits everybody, hits them, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough for Florida in year one. That is a key indicator as to why they have a new staff in place. Uh, next up, now we're talking about playoff a little bit here. Remember last year, who do we have? Bama, Cincinnati, Michigan, Georgia, in no particular order. Joe Cook says Michigan repeats and Georgia repeats. I'm taking that to mean both of them are in the playoff again this year. Both of them in the playoff? That's an eight 
on the boldness scale out of 1 to 10. But it's not out of the realm of possibility for any one of them. See, this is where the big difference is. I mean, it makes such a big difference if Joe were to have said one of them is going to make the playoff again versus both of them are going to make the playoff again. What are the national championship odds right now? You may be wondering that. We're talking about teams making the playoff. What are the odds? Well, luckily, Stats and Info has it prepared for us. Georgia has the second best odds to win the national championship in the country right now. They're at plus 325. Only Alabama is listed ahead of them. But you don't have to go too far down the list to find Michigan. Michigan is three, four, five, six, eight. They're in, they're in a multi-way tie for eighth. They're at plus 4,000. So point is, both of these teams are in the top 10 of the preseason national championship odds. So it's not crazy. But then you have to understand, we're predicting half the playoff field here. Think about with no parameters in place, how hard that's proven to be. You know, this is a sport where folks claim that the playoff is so predictable. And yet, with your life on the line last year, I guarantee you, if you had to predict two of the four teams with your life on the line, there would have been a lot of Ohio State broken hearts. There would have been a lot of Clemson, Oklahoma broken hearts. So we're trying to, in June, predict half of this thing. The difficulty in any given season to do that is one thing. But then you also have to take into account Georgia, like any title-winning team, could have the natural complacency thing creep in, for all we know. They could have uh, the, the natural effect of losing like an entire all-pro awards team's worth of NFL draft talent uh, that you had last year that you won't have this year. And at Michigan, while I have told you people are confident that the whole flirtation with the Vikings thing won't affect Jim Harbaugh, we don't know that. We also don't know that losing both coordinators won't negatively impact them. So with that being said, I'm going to say that's an eight. Both of them in the playoff, that's an eight on the boldness scale. Not crazy, but bold. Next up, this is kind of mean, actually. Hugh said uh, Kansas is going to end with a better record than Nebraska, and Scott Frost is going to get fired. I did some radio in Omaha yesterday. I have never in my life talked about a week zero game in Ireland more than I talked about it, with good reason with the guys up there at ESPN Radio in Omaha yesterday. For the record, Nebraska's playing Northwestern in Iowa in late August. I hear it's lovely there that time of year. And that's about as far as I'll go. If you want my thoughts on international college football, listen to this week's Late Kick Extra podcast. Find it anywhere you get your podcast. So this is a nine. To project Kansas with a better record than Nebraska and Frost getting fired, that's a nine. Okay, it's not going to happen. Spoiler alert, I'm sorry. When I tell you what's going to happen sometimes, I forget to give you a spoiler alert. Uh, the over-under win totals here, two and a half for Kansas. That's up from one and a half, by the way. It's been bet up. They opened at one and a half. Now it's a two and a half. Nebraska, over-under win total, seven and a half. Now Frost has not made a bowl game at Nebraska. So this shows you the odds makers think, number one, that drought may very well come to an end this year. Number two, they were three and nine last year. The over-under win total, seven and a half. A lot of folks that have to be right on this stuff when they're setting their numbers believe there's a big bounce back coming for Nebraska this year. I believe that too. But if I'm, if I'm wrong, and if the under hits by a mile, okay, let's just go with the total disaster scenario. To show you how, to me, out of the realm of reasonability this is, let's say Nebraska does not make a bowl. Let's say they go four and eight. Yes, Scott Frost is out unequivocally if they go four and eight. So that part of the prediction will validate. 
but you've still got to find me five wins for Kansas. And that's just not happening. Kansas, by the way, they've lost at least nine games every year since 2012. I had Stats and Info run the numbers. That's an entire decade where they've lost at least nine games. We're showing you their last 10 seasons on a slider if you're watching on YouTube right now. Here are their win totals. 2-0-3-3-1-2-0-3-3-1. That, it's like a locker combination, I guess. Well, that is not a formula for all of a sudden popping a five or six win season on me this year. And believe it or not, I'm kind of high on Kansas by Kansas standards this year, but that may mean a four-win season. Look, I think Nebraska is going to minimally make a bowl game, so uh, this one not happening. It's Nebraska last year was three and nine, right? But Nebraska is close. Nebraska is like the Allstate commercial where the dollar bills on the fishing line. Oh, Got to be quicker than that. But she's close. Kansas is sleeping in a boxcar down the road. They're not close. So I expect things from Nebraska this year. I don't necessarily expect those same things from Kansas. It sounds like I have an irrational hatred of Kansas. I don't. I just don't think this prediction is going to happen. Some of that was probably unwarranted, but I said what I said. It's live. We move on. Let's go to the Big 12 to wrap things up here. Texas Tech is going to be a top 15 program under Joey McGuire. You know what? I misread this. I, for some reason, I thought Landon had said this is going to happen this season. So you know what, Landon? You may very well be right in time. I have to make an executive decision here. We are going to play pretend. It's a very professional thing to do. And I'm going to pretend that you said they're going to be a top 15 team this year. Okay? Three, two, one. Landon, that's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. And you should be ashamed for saying it. That's a nine on the one to 10 boldness scale. Uh, they were seven and six last year. They fired the staff, obviously. So Joey McGuire comes in. Uh, they love him out there. So don't overlook this in time. Don't overlook the Joey McGuire factor. They love him in Lubbock. Uh, brand new there, but they love him so far. 90% not 90%, they're 90th in terms of returning production. So there's not a lot to buy into this particular year. Quarterback's still kind of unsettled there too. They've got the second worst odds in the Big 12. That's the bad news. I guess the good news, the ray of sunshine and hope here is, so did Baylor last year. Guess who won the conference? So there's that. If you're looking for a very, very bold futures bet, there's that. Uh, they got the Big 12 schedule. They've also got a Houston and NC State out of conference. So I am buying the future of this program, to be clear. I'm just not buying them being top 15 this year. Now we return to normalcy. Landon, I'm sure you're a great guy with a good heart, and I hate that I had to do that to you. Okay, moving on. There are some things happening even, what was this, about three hours ago, even in the last three hours or so. This was a late addition to the show, so that's why we didn't lead with it. How well do you remember January 10th? For many of you, in our community, if you're a real one, in other words, you remember, ooh, that was the day they played the national championship game. That's Alabama versus Georgia. So I remember watching Georgia pull off a historical win, and it was the first championship in recent memory, and the red and black confetti rained down over Kirby Smart, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, that's what you should remember. Unless you're one of the casual seals who were clapping in disamusement at the high-level mustaches that run the playoff not delivering your precious expansion that all of you had been promised was imminent. And that happened. The audacity to have that happen on the same morning of the national championship game. 
It was laughable then, it's laughable now. It was laughable to me because I wasn't rooting for it, but forget me for a second. It was laughable, period, because anyone who had spoken to anyone with knowledge of how this whole thing works, this whole playoff expansion thing works, they were laughing because they knew they were going to have to be right back at the table. See, a lot of folks have been wrongly focused on the year 2026 because that's technically when there isn't a format in place. But that's not the deadline, guys. That's never been the deadline. The deadline's right around the corner. They knew this when they, when they broke off the talks in Indianapolis this last January. Well, that brings us to this very afternoon, January, February, March, April, May, June. So essentially a couple of days later. Here we are in early June, and Ross Dellinger of SI today, second reference for Ross on the show tonight, he had a report that was triggered by some things that he was told at the SEC spring meetings down in Destin. I presume that's where this came from. So here's what you need to know. The execs around the college football playoff hope to have a format in place by, wait for it, next summer, a year from now. That same group that couldn't even agree on what to eat for brunch six months ago, they're going to have this thing figured out, or at least they hope to, by this time next year, I guess. What's different, you may ask? Why are they expecting a different result this time around? Well, I'm speaking in a very mocking tone, but there are some differences. All this is on SI.com if you want to read it. But if you don't feel like reading it, here's what's going on. They do not need unanimous consent this time around from the college football playoff board. And that is essentially the 10 conference commissioners and Jack Swarbert, the AD at Notre Dame. They had to unanimously agree this last time around if they wanted to change the playoff format before the contract ran out. So they stood to make 400 something million more dollars per year if they would have gotten it done. Well, they didn't get it done. In the end, the ACC, the Pac-12, and the Big Ten, the alliance, one of the weakest alliances in the history of the world, they stood in the way of it happening. And then you had angry folks like Greg Sankey from the SEC walk away and say, all right, he kind of looked over his shoulder and said, you'll never get us to the table in the way we were this time again. Well, the reason that sounds so fresh is because it just happened, just happened in January. So... Now you don't have to have unanimous consent anymore. There's also a deadline that's approaching. And that's another very, very key component here. The deadline is not 2026. The deadline is essentially 2024. Why? Because the contract runs out in the 2025 season. And in order to have something in place, you don't get to change things on the, on the fly. You've got to get locations figured out, first and foremost. And keep in mind, this is an expanded playoff. So you don't just have to figure out a couple of semifinal sites and the national championship site. You have to bid these things out if that's the route you're going to go. If that's not the route you're going to go, you got to get the bowls to sign off on how you're going to work locations. Uh, they've got this ridiculous concept that they're currently working off of where the first round will be on campus, but then the rest of them are going to be in these lifeless NFL stadiums. And in case you can't tell, I'm not happy about that. But if that's the way it's going to go, that's the way it's going to go. they got to get it figured out regardless. In 2024 is when they really need to have this thing figured out. And also, there's this other pesky little note that shouldn't be overlooked. Television contracts are in a state of flux right now. The Big Ten's about to announce a new one any second. I know I keep saying that. That's the word on the street in our industry, any second. The SEC just did. But you've also got a separate contract, a college football playoff television contract. ESPN, I think in October of 2024, has an exclusive window 
to negotiate that. But, and this is where I do align with the alliance, some folks, Pac-12, Big Ten, etc., they look at ESPN and they say, hold on, we're not exactly on the best of terms with that conference down south right now. Same conference that has signed exclusivity in terms of their own TV deal with ESPN starting in 2024. Might we want to, in the spirit of the free market, let this thing go to market instead of just letting ESPN bid and then look over their shoulder? Oh, no one else? Okay, I guess it's ours. Let's get Fox in the room. You know, let's get CBS in the room. Let's get Amazon in the room. Let's get everyone in the room. So at the very least, we make the most money we possibly can, but also maybe we divvy up the inventory a little bit and not let one entity, one network, have a chokehold on it. In that sense, you can count me as a fourth member of the Alliance. I'm all for that. The NFL does it the right way there. You don't tune into one network to watch NFL football. You tune into like five or six of them. Everyone's got a piece of that pie. That is the best for a number of reasons in terms of the way to go about things there. But whatever they're gonna get figured out, they have to get figured out pretty quickly. What are the potential snags here? Like 400 of them. But to save you some time, one of the biggest snags is where is Greg Sankey's head at right now? Where is the SEC's collective attitude at right now? You are not going to do anything worthwhile without them. I know technically you could look back at me and say, uh-uh, we don't need unanimous consent anymore. No, no, you don't. But you need the SEC. If you want a product worth anything, you need the SEC. You better find out whether they were just bluffing last week when they talked about going down the road of figuring out their own playoff. See how convoluted this gets really quickly? Another thing is the ACC and Jim Phillips, the commissioner over there, you might remember since it was like yesterday, that they came out and said, we are not rubber stamping any proposal for expansion until we get something in writing pertaining to all of the other myriad issues we have in this sport. NIL, the portal, all the stuff that's out of whack right now that everyone's up in arms about. Jim Phillips said, you're not getting our signature on anything until we get all that figured out. That's another potential snag. Um, I also am strongly led to believe that unlike last time, I think TV executives will be a lot more directly involved this time around. You know, you may start hearing names that you're not used to hearing. You don't know the name Jimmy Pataro. Most of you don't. Uh, Bert Mangus. You don't know those names. You don't need to know those names. You may start hearing those names a little bit more because here's the thing we do know about television networks. Before they bid on something, they kind of want to know what they're bidding on. You know, when there are nine and ten figure deals going down, which this will be, they kind of want to know what it is they're bidding on. You know, networks are funny like that. They're going to plop down a couple of billion dollars. For some odd reason, they want to know what it is they're spending that money on. And those are just three of the snags that are potentially in the way. Uh, you also have the caveat that did attitudes change the last time around? You can talk about what needs to happen and a deadline and a line drawn in the sand. Have attitudes changed? If attitudes haven't changed, I really don't know what the future of the sport holds. You can tell I'm not sweating over it because I don't put my faith in the postseason. So my regular season is going to be there. I know on the third Saturday in October, we're going to have college football the way we always have. I don't know what you guys have coming in January. Call me when you figure it out. I'll be there. Not with bells on, but... I wish you the best of luck. I really do. They're watching us in Melbourne, Florida, Birmingham, Alabama, and Hershey, Pennsylvania, also tuned in tonight. Speaking of the evil, dreaded SEC, I had a question 
about something that I haven't really talked about on the show because I kind of think it's boring, but you do care about it. So let's talk about it. I'm just going to give you what you need to know. Jimmy in Andalusia, Alabama, he said, can you explain what the big hangup is with the SEC scheduling stuff? I've heard like a thousand takes on it. It all sounds like white noise at this point. Well, there's a reason, Jimmy. That's because it is. And so in lieu of making you go to different websites and reading different articles with just a bunch of word salad thrown at you, essentially, here's what you need to know. Right now, the Southeastern Conference does not know what it wants to do with its future schedule. What is it all about? They're about to add two teams, okay? Oklahoma, Texas, they're coming in the back door, and all of a sudden, you're going to have a 16-team conference. Here's what I can guarantee you. Divisions are going away. It's not going to be an SEC East, SEC West world anymore. Pretty much everyone in Destin this week agreed with that. What we don't know yet is what the new scheduling format will be. That's what they're arguing over. Eh, arguing may be a strong term. They are feverishly debating that and have been all week. Uh, Brandon Marcello uh, from 24-7, our Brandon Marcello, he's down in Destin, uh, indicated late this afternoon, you should not expect a vote on this tomorrow. Whereas previously, there was at least some guidance that maybe if the week goes well, we're going to have an answer by Friday. Doesn't look like that's in the cards. So what are they arguing about? There are two formats. It's not really all that complicated in theory. There is the 7-1 format and there is the 6-3 format. The 7-1 format is very simple. The 1 represents the number of fixed opponents you have. So Georgia would play Florida every year. That's their fixed opponent. And then you have seven other games that you just rotate through, conference games. So you pretty much play the entire conference every two years. And then you have the other format, and that's the 6-3 format. And that would be three permanent fixed opponents. And then you rotate six conference opponents through. I'm just going to give you very quickly what stands out about each one of them. With the 7-1 format, a lot of folks... Well, let me rephrase. Some folks in the SEC like it because it keeps them at eight conference games. Some, there are some opinions in the SEC that they should not expand to nine games. We already play in the toughest conference. Why should we voluntarily make it tougher on ourselves? That's the talking point. It's not shared by everyone, but it is shared by some people. This would, the argument is, not force a lot of programs to cancel a lot of already scheduled out-of-conference games. To give you an idea, between 2025 and 2037, the conference has a combined 182 out-of-conference games scheduled. Some of the thinking is, well, if we're going to change our conference schedule and we're going to play nine conference games, we're going to have to cancel some of our previously scheduled out-of-conference games. Also, and this is clearly the biggest hang-up if you're a casual fan, excuse me, a normal fan, you cannot have all of your longtime rivalries fixed with this model. You cannot. For example, Texas and Oklahoma are coming into the conference. They will play every year. They will be each other's fixed opponent in the 7-1 format. But you know what you would not get? You wouldn't get Texas A&M versus Texas every year, which is a no-brainer of what should happen when you're adding Texas to the conference that A&M's in. You would not get Bama-Tennessee every year. I know some of you are 20 years old and say, big deal. Well, once upon a time, children, it was a big deal, and it could be again. Point being, there are some rivalry games you'd have to give up in this format. Now, the 6-3 format has far more support. I think this is the one that's ultimately going to win out. That's the one where you play nine conference games. That's the biggest takeaway. Three permanent rivals, 
and then you got six rotational games. There's far more support for this. TV is rooting for it. Most fan bases and fans would root for it because it gives you a better inventory of games. It justifies the rising price you pay for tickets. It does away with one more cupcake game, if you will, per year. All rivalries are maintained in this format. What's the downside? It just sounds like a bunch of positives, right? Well, attrition is the downside because it's, it's tough. It's easy to say, let's just add a conference game. Well, it's a lot tougher to actually do it, especially if you, if you play in a stronger conference. They don't know what the college football playoff situation is going to be. You know, a lot of folks in the SEC have liked staying at eight because they say, well, wait, as long as that playoff committee just looks at a win as a win and a loss as a loss, why would we voluntarily make it tougher on ourselves and lessen the percentage chance that a team's going undefeated in our conference when we don't have to, as long as that thing's at four teams? Now, if it expands to 12 teams, a lot of people don't have that reservation anymore, but we don't know. I just told you five minutes ago, no one knows what the playoff format's going to be. To give you an idea of what I mean by attrition, though, I want you to listen to this. I want you to imagine this with me. In 2026, not too long from now, Georgia has three out-of-conference games already scheduled against Georgia Tech. They play them every year. Louisville and UCLA. All those games are happening in the same year, at least as of now. If you add a ninth conference game, I just read you Georgia's entire schedule. Nine SEC games, Georgia Tech, Louisville, and UCLA. You notice what there wasn't there? There wasn't a single G5 team. There certainly wasn't an FCS team. It's just 12 games against Power 5 competition. You may think to yourself, good, good. What's the downside? The downside is if everyone else in the country is not doing the same thing, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but it's not fair to the poor little SEC program. And I'm sure that every one of you share that sentiment. Uh, my point is, there are some pros and cons with each. That's why they haven't arrived at a conclusion. But to go back to the question, why does it sound like white noise and how do we slice through it? Well, that's it. There are disagreements on two formats and I just gave you the essential pros and cons of each one. There you go. I kind of get tired of talking about it, but it doesn't really matter because it's your show. It's not my show. Uh, last thing I wanted to hit on here. Really good question. Uh, we should have thought about this before one of you had to ask about it. Travis is in Mason, Ohio. He said, are there any sleepers you're watching from the transfer portal? Yes, 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 and yes. I've got four of them. I want you to write these names down because these are big ones. These are going to be impact players. Cameron Ward is the first one. He's a quarterback. He's from Incarnate Word, and he is now going to play his college football at Washington State. Why don't you know anything about him? The first clue is Incarnate Word, admittedly. Second reason is when he came out of high school, he ran triple option offenses. And so he had one offer, he took it, but then he became the, let's see, he was the top FCS freshman in 2020. He led FCS in touchdown passes last year, and now he goes to Washington State, and here's a little cherry on top that I don't think many people are aware of. His head coach at Incarnate Word went with him. He is now also the offensive coordinator at Washington State. So there's some familiarity there. You've got a guy who, although maybe raw, especially relative to the Power Five level, is viewed as a potential NFL guy down the road. Hardly anyone knows about him aside from diehard college football fans. So if you're wanting to look out west, especially at a more obscure program, all due respect, and you're wanting to sound really smart around that water cooler, talk about Cameron Ward over the next few weeks. 
because there will be an I told you so moment, several of them, as a matter of fact, this fall. Cameron Ward, that's the first one I'm looking at. Second, Eric Gentry, linebacker, just went to Southern Cal by way of Arizona State. He was 6'6", 200, coming out of high school. He was in Philadelphia. So he was, he was a three-star in our rankings only because he didn't have the prototypical size, and he probably missed out on a lot of big offers because folks looked at him as more a project. You're going to have to put some weight on him, probably not going to play until his second or third year. Well, all he did was garner true freshman All-American award honors last year at Arizona State at linebacker. He had 45 tackles, five tackles for loss, had a sack. Now he's going to USC. You know what they need at USC? They don't need any more receivers. They do need difference makers on defense, and Eric Gentry is going to be one of those. They added Shane Lee from Alabama too, so I'm really interested to see what their linebacking core looks like. He could be an edge guy, he could be an inside linebacker, it just all depends on how it shakes out there, but he's got some versatility about himself. He's also got probably a much higher ceiling even than you've seen from him so far. He's probably still frame-wise not what he can be ultimately. Jared Ivey is another name I want you to pay attention to. This is an edge rusher type. He was at Georgia Tech. I assume, unless you were diehard Georgia Tech, fan last year. You probably don't know a lot about him. In 2021, played 11 games. He had 40 tackles, one and a half sacks. Everyone's talking about Jackson Dart at Ole Miss. Everyone's talking about Zach Evans. We are too. I'm high on both of them. Um, So those are the most high profile portal guys that Ole Miss got. Jared Ivey is a big time get, but he's on the defensive side. He's out of Georgia Tech. He's an edge rusher, not a household name. He is a guy though, that in the NFL circles and the scouting circles, a lot of folks already are looking at and they're saying, okay, still need to see a lot, but the intangibles, the characteristics, the critical traits, they're all there. He's 6'6", six, six, he's two, or 225, he's a junior, so he's played some ball. He is versatile. You know, they've got uh, new coordinators there, and Chris Partridge is the new defensive coordinator at Ole Miss. Versatility, the name of the game with him, and it just so happens to be what Jared Ivey gives you, uh, can do a lot of things in a lot of different looks for you. So Jared Ivey at Ole Miss, I think is a name to watch. And also Montrell Johnson is a running back at Florida. Montrell Johnson was at Louisiana with Billy Napier. He's coming over just like Billy Napier is to Florida. He was Sunbelt Freshman of the Year at running back. Napier is very comfortable with him. And if you watch the spring game, you know, there was a lot of running. There will be a lot of running the ball for Florida this year. But also, if you look at tailback, just look at the running back position for Florida. You've got Lingard, you've got Wright, you've got Demarcus Bowman there. I don't know who the feature back is. They've all had injury concerns too, all three of them. My guess, maybe not immediately, or maybe so, but eventually, I think Montrell Johnson can end up being the feature tailback down there. Uh, It's easy to say Billy Napier is most comfortable with him. He's the most comfortable in this system. And he's also shown the ability to be a feature bag. So those are four names. Cameron Ward, Eric Gentry, Jared Ivey, Montrell Johnson. Those are portal sleepers that I think stand a very good chance of being integral parts of those four teams come this fall. Okay, uh, we are a little bit faster than I thought we were, closing in on 100,000 subs on the YouTube channel. And I, I maintain, because of management telling me, I maintain there is a surprise coming once we hit 100,000. So I'm not gonna, not gonna be demonstrative about it. I'm not gonna bang my fists. I wait until we're off air to do that. But if you haven't already subbed to the YouTube channel, please do so. We're getting a lot of them every day, so I thank you guys for that. 
Also, on the podcast side of things, we have no business being a top 10 football podcast in the world because that's not even our main source of traffic, but yet we are a top 10 football podcast in the world. Thank you guys for that. Appreciate that. So the best way to help us, it's free of charge. Sub. Just subscribe. Wherever you listen or if you watch on YouTube, subscribe. That's it and that's all. show's going to be free now until forever as long as we can maintain what we're doing right now. Thank you so much to you guys for everything that you do for the show. We had the best... We had an insane May. Let me just put it that way. For producer Jesse, for director Colin, I'm Josh Pate. Have yourselves a great start to your weekend. We'll be back here Sunday night, same time. Until then, God bless. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.